Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. If you've embraced the end of mask mandates and have gone largely maskless in recent months, I have some bad news for you. Those days are coming to an end in some places because of an increase in COVID cases and hospitalizations. Starting today, Alameda County is re-implementing an indoor mask mandate for public settings like restaurants, stores, and gyms. It's the first county in the Bay Area to make such a move. At this time, health officials in other Bay Area counties are strongly suggesting, but not requiring face coverings indoors. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles County, public health officials say an indoor mask mandate there might be introduced by the end of this month. LA County is poised to, you know, align fully with the CDC uh, recommendation that if a county finds itself at that high community level, they go ahead and require folks to wear those masks when they're indoors. That's Los Angeles County Public Health Director Dr. Barbara Ferrer. The latest data from the CDC shows that 13 California counties have reached the agency's high community level for COVID-19 danger. They include Sacramento, Santa Clara, Marin, and Napa counties. Ferrer says L.A. County will likely reach that level in the coming weeks. A huge relief. That's the reaction from many, including the East Bay Community Law Center in Oakland, to news that the U.S. Department of Education is canceling student loan debt for some 500,000 students who attended Corinthian colleges. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. The Clinic of UC Berkeley Law is part of a nationwide coalition that fought a decade-long legal battle on behalf of students. Corinthian was accused of targeting low-income students, leaving them with a mountain of debt and too often without the jobs promised with the degrees offered. Desiree Nguyen Orth is the organization's consumer protection attorney. She says the relief, announced on Wednesday, will help students in many ways. When our students experience a debt cancellation, it's a tremendous weight being lifted off of their shoulders. We know that loans on your credit report really affect your credit worthiness and your housing ability, your ability to get housing. Nguyen Orth says the move is a small step in the right direction, but much more needs to be done to address the costs of higher education and the burdens it places on students and their families. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. 
For the first time ever, state regulators have approved a permit for a self-driving car company to be able to charge passengers for driverless rides. The California Public Utilities Commission approved the permit for the company Cruise to operate in San Francisco. It will initially be limited to 30 electric vehicles, and service will be confined to less congested parts of San Francisco, and only between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. The vehicles will not be allowed to exceed 30 miles per hour, or operate in heavy rain or fog. Cruise has already been offering free rides to customers in San Francisco, but those vehicles had a backup driver in the car in case something went wrong with the technology. And in labor news, dancers at the Star Garden Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood could be the first strip club workers to successfully unionize since performers at a club in San Francisco did the same thing. The dancers say the owners and security guards at the North Hollywood business haven't been keeping them safe when customers violate boundaries, and ongoing picketing hasn't been enough to motivate changes. KCRW's Robin Estrin has more, and a quick disclaimer, this story does address adult themes. When Reagan, a Star Garden dancer, feels empowered and in control of her environment, that's when she loves her job. For her, stripping is a way to take pleasure in being sexual and making money off of it and not just being an object that people make money off of. But control can be hard to maintain for a dancer in a strip club. Velveeta, another Star Garden dancer, says that for every kind and respectful customer who walks through the door, others come looking to act out violent fantasies and aggression. We're using the stage names of Star Garden's dancers to protect their privacy. There was a girl who was dragged across the stage by her ankle by a customer. Um, so this stuff is really real and really happening. Other threats Velveeta and her coworkers have faced at work are even more severe. And dancers say at Star Garden, the people who are supposed to protect them at work, the club owners and security guards, don't. Everyone inside has crossed the picket line. The protest started in mid-March after two dancers, including Reagan, say they were fired after raising safety concerns. But Reagan says problems started months earlier when a security guard told her he wouldn't intervene when she was in a dangerous situation with a drunk customer. I had never heard that from a security guard in my life. You're not allowed to intervene. Isn't that your entire job? What are you doing then? (laughs) You're just standing around for decoration? In testimony reviewed by KCRW, a couple named Steve and Jenny Kazarian, Star Garden's owners, wrote to the National Labor Relations Board that the dancers were asked to leave after acting aggressively towards customers and staff. On March 18th, Star Garden's dancers walked off the job. Here's Velveeta again. And we told her that we wouldn't work until we felt safe, and, and that's why we're out here. So what might workplace safety look like in a strip club? Well, these dancers want access to security guards. They also want panic buttons installed in the lap dance booths and for management to kick customers out after closing when they need to walk out of the dressing room in civilian clothes. But would that really protect them from danger? It's not an easy question to answer. None of the dancers I spoke to for the story, dancers who have worked in clubs all across the country, could name a single model of a strip club where workers routinely felt respected and safe. Again, Reagan. It feels like the industry has normalized so many bad things that it's hard to imagine like a club without 
those issues. So they're trying something else. In May, the dancers at Star Garden voted to unionize with the labor organization Strippers United. If their drive is successful, Star Garden will be the first strip club in the U.S. to unionize since the Lusty Lady in San Francisco back in the 90s. That club shuttered in 2013, but one of the dancers there, Antonia Crane, went on to create Strippers United. I want them to negotiate a contract with and implement and create protections and policies that they want for themselves. An anti-discrimination policy, a policy that protects them from wage theft and abusive clients and management. Then, the dancers say they want to come back to work with policies in place that not only keep them safe, but allow them to have some fun, too. For The California Report, I'm Robin Estrin in Los Angeles. KCRW reached out multiple times to Star Garden Management for comment on this story, but got no response. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Next week, the Summit of the Americas convenes in Los Angeles. Held about every three years, it's a gathering of heads of state from across the Western Hemisphere. The U.S. hasn't hosted the summit since 1994. This year, immigration, trade, public health, and climate change will be just some of the issues on the agenda. The summit will also provide the Biden administration an opportunity to highlight its foreign policy agenda in Latin America. But organizing the summit has been bumpy, particularly because of Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Angered that Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela weren't invited, Lopez Obrador has said he probably won't show up. That follows other recent tensions in U.S.-Mexico relations. I talked about the summit and those tensions with Mexico's former ambassador to the U.S., Arturo Sarucan. My first question, why is the summit important to the United States? Well, so certainly, I think, first of all, it's, it's re-engagement. Re-engagement after four years of the U.S. having completely ignored the region. President Trump and his, and his administration really didn't care about the region. So, first of all, it's, it's hopefully a message of the United States is back. The United States is back as, as a partner who is willing to listen, that's willing to engage. And so... What I do hope is is that the summit is an opportunity for U.S. holistic and strategic re-engagement with the region. And what about this summit and a really important relationship in the hemisphere, and that's the one between the United States and Mexico? Well, Mexico is slightly an outlier in all of this because 
Mexico and the U.S. have such a profound interconnection. The diplomatic footprint of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, it, no other country in the Americas, not even Canada, has the, the depth and the width of the diplomatic agenda, diplomatic engagement, bilateral engagement that Mexico and the U.S. have. So really in terms for U.S.-Mexican affairs and Mexican relations, it's really more about Mexico actually being at the summit. We hope that President López Obrador will finally decide to be there. I've always believed that for a country like Mexico, you usually have two options when it comes to international affairs. You either sit at the table or you're on the menu. And I don't want Mexico to be on the menu. Well, Ambassador, you brought him up. So let's talk about Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. You know, he's often described as this man of the left, but he's had a pretty prickly relationship with the Biden administration. He seemed to have far warmer and chummier relations with Donald Trump. So what's up with that? Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This is a man who believes that anything that has to do with Mexican domestic politics is the sole purview of Mexico and Mexicans. He knows that Democrats are more likely to speak up regarding issues of impunity, of you know the potential erosion of checks and balances in Mexico's democracy. Um, and he knew that Trump, as long as he kept Trump happy with posting the National Guard on Mexico's border to prevent Central American migrants from crossing, Trump would not care less about any other issue in the bilateral agenda or in the domestic politics of Mexico. And so that's why you saw that chummy relationship. In fact, in many ways, López Obrador and Donald Trump are twins from a different mother. Well, speaking of similarities between Donald Trump and López Obrador, as you know, in Mexico, a lot of people comment that the Mexican president has a streak of authoritarianism to him. Is that something you would agree with? And does it concern you? I wouldn't go so far as to say authoritarian measures, but I certainly am concerned about the health of Mexico's democracy today as a direct result of the president's public policies. His assault on autonomous institutions, and obviously his assault on his daily assault on the media and those who criticize him from the presidential bully pulpit. And so what you are seeing is a slippery slope of, of democratic erosion in Mexico, which I am deeply concerned about. All right. That is Mexico's former ambassador to the United States, Arturo Sarucan. Ambassador Sarucan, thanks so much for joining us on the California Report. It's my great pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals, personalcapital.com. Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. 
And that is the California Report for Friday, June 3rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin, Jim Bennett, and Chris Hoff, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producer is Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Mary Franklin Harvin. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day and talk soon. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.